to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray now that you would bless us in a mighty way to hear your word, to proclaim your word, and to follow your word. May you be glorified. May your people be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn with me once again in your copy of God's Holy Writ to Acts chapter 5. Beginning with verse 6, and the text reads, And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such much, for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. I want to preach today from the subject being a straight up church in an upside down world. That's what God is calling us to be here at Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. He is calling us to be a straight up church in an upside down fallen world. The Bible is open, honest, and straightforward in its recording of events. It records the blemishes and faults of God's people as well as their glowing successes and strengths. Let me cite some well-known examples of this truth. Moses is Righteous defiance of Pharaoh appears on the pages of the Holy Writ. Moses was a righteous man, a humble man. You can read about how he opposed Pharaoh with all of his power in the Holy Writ. But the Bible also lifts up his unrighteous defiance of God that barred him from entering the promised land. You remember the story? He struck the rock twice instead of speaking to the rock in Numbers chapter 20, verses 8, 11 through 12. How about David? King David, the glory, many glorious victories graced the pages of the Bible. Many of his glorious victories, beginning when he was just a young shepherd boy, and, and by the power of God, he, he slew Goliath, and all of his victories graced the pages of Scripture. Yet along with his great victories, on the pages of biblical truth, drip, the pages of truth drip with the shock and the horror, and the dismay of his adulterous relationship with a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, whom he lustfully watched bathing from his rooftop. 
The Bible lays it all out there clear, irregardless of person, position, prominence, or power. In addition to that, David had her husband, Uriah, killed in an attempt to cover up his sin. The book of Proverbs records that the height of Solomon's wisdom, you know, Solomon was David and Bathsheba's son, and even the queen of Sheba came and to, to examine his wisdom for herself and, and proclaimed that, that his wisdom exceeded all of her expectations. The half had not been told, as she puts it. Well, while Proverbs records the height of Solomon's wisdom, the record of Ecclesiastes relates the depth of his folly and his foolishness, or his foolishness. To be sure, the Bible, the inspired word of God, never presents us with a glossy 8 by 10 portrait of truth void of the reality of sin, suffering, and its consequences. Now, thus far, we are going through the book of Acts, uh, but thus far in the book of Acts, Luke's portrait of the church has been totally positive up to this point. Last week, uh, we talked about how uh, Peter and John uh, were with this young, this beggar, uh, this lame beggar, and how uh, by the power of God, by the power of Jesus' name, Peter healed him, and the man went into the temple. He's leaping. He's, he's shouting. He's praising God. Um, it, up to this point, it's been positive. From his dramatic birth on the day of Pentecost to the joyful, dynamic fellowship and explosive growth where Peter preached in one sermon, 3,000 people joined the church. Up to this point, the church is seen in its beauty, in its freshness in his vitality even the devil's attempt to stop the power productivity and persuasion of the church by means of applying external pressure upon its leaders was a failure high priest and the sadducees sought to destroy peter and john and the apostles even that up to this point was a failure Might I pause here and remind us that the devil and his demonic forces are real and his underlying purpose is to oppose the work of God, namely through the work of God's church. And in opposing the power of the church, in opposing the purpose of the church, in opposing the passion of the church and the persuasion of the church, Satan lives up to his name, which means adversary. He is our adversary. He is the adversary of the church. Footnote. Be be advised, be awake, and be aware. That wherever God and whenever God is moving and wherever and whenever the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is being 
proclaim wherever the focus is on evangelism, winning folk to Jesus Christ, discipleship, mentoring and modeling before new believers and shaping and molding their character. And whenever people of, of God are unashamedly, uncompromisingly and unapologetically telling the story of Jesus who lived a sinless life, died a mortal's death on Calvary's cross, suffered, bled, and died to save us from our sins, was buried in a borrowed tomb. Whenever that story is told and that he got up early on the third day Sunday morning from the grave with all power given unto him, whenever the church is engaged in culture, transforming lives, Satan, the devil, the advocate, the adversary will be active in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Don't you ever forget it. Church need not walk through life with blinders on, not understanding that we are in a spiritual battle. Luke tells us that the devil's initial attack on the church came through the persecution of Peter and John who healed a lame man in the name of Jesus. That's the initial attack. That's where it started, according to Luke in the book of Acts. They healed this lame man. You remember the story from last week? And then they, Peter preached that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, preached that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Even preached that there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we may be saved. Jesus is the name. That's it. There is no other name. Peter and the apostles preached it. No matter how sophisticated we get, there is no other name. No matter how populists push their agenda, there is no other name. No matter how much education we get, there is no other name. No matter how much money we have, there is no other name by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus is the epitome. It's the apex. It's the citadel. As a result of their preaching, Peter and John were arrested and placed in prison. But an amazing thing happened. They were arrested by, pushed by the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin council, placed in prison as a deterrent to their preaching, but the persecution failed to silence them. In other words, it backfired. For Acts 4 and 4 records, however many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Lock them up and folk got saved by the grove. 
isn't it amazing that under the times of persecution we grow and we we spread and and we have great great accomplishments it's been that way in my life i'm sure in yours and during times of intense pressure, during tough times, it's as though God elevates us and blesses us to achieve even more for his kingdom's sake. Such was the case in this story. And so now faith with defeat Satan changed his tactics. Realizing that external pressure only fanned the flames, and caused the church to grow, he decided to get at the base of the fire. To do so, he infiltrated the church, the ranks of the believers, in order to attack it with corruption from within. I remember years ago hearing about how great a nation Rome was. But I also read that it was not external power, external enemies that brought Rome to its knees as great a country as it was. It was the corruption, the moral decay from within that brought this mighty country to its knees. Satanic strategy. So how did he do it? How did he get in? Well, the story in Acts 5, 1 through 11 makes it clear. A a certain man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property they owned. After the sale, Ananias kept back a portion of the proceeds for him, for himself. And when he had taken his money off the top, he presented the rest to the apostles as though he was giving them the full amount. Peter, operating in his spiritual gift of discernment, some people have that gift, you know, they can discern truth from falsehood. It just seems like many of our mothers and grandmothers had that gift, right? I mean, you would come in and you would say something, they'd look at you, they say, boy, you lying. Girl, you lied. I know that. I know that truth. You said, Mama, how you know? I know you lied. But Peter knew he was lying. He was operating in his gift of discernment. And so he asked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Peter went on to say, while it remained, that is, it was your possession, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Then Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. After Ananias heard the stinging rebuke of Peter's words, the Bible says he fell down and breathed his last. Notice the results. So great fear came upon all those who heard what happened. God got their attention. God got the audience. God got their ears. Then some young men arose, wrapped 
up his body, carried him out, and 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 buried him. Uh, one of my commentators, uh, commentators I read, said they buried him because in those days it was very hot, and so they disposed of him quickly. Remember, about three hours later, Sapphira, his wife, came in, and not knowing what had happened, came in, oblivious to what was going on. We don't really know where she was, how she missed the news. I mean, there was a great prayer meet, great worship going on. She don't know where, where she was, what she's doing, but she missed it. So it was Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she replied, yes, we did affirming the amount of her husband's claim. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And then the young men came in and found her dead, carried her out, and buried her by her husband. So great fear, verse 11 says, came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. Notice verse 11 says, now great fear came upon the church and all who heard these things. Now there are four issues. We, we must adhere to if we are going to be a straight-up church in a falling-down world. First, if we're going to be a straight-up church in a falling-down world, we need to avoid sinful pretense. That is, stay away from fakery, falsehood, hypocrisy. Uh, that means that every one of us needs to be comfortable Y'all, in our own skin, we need not attempt to live up to anyone's expectations but God's. We need not waste time, energy, efforts, or money in an effort to make people believe we are something that we are not. Now, notice the contrast between Ananias and Sapphira's and a disciple called Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. In this particular text, church members, as a matter of survival, doing intense persecution, began selling their land and their houses. The church was being persecuted by the religious leaders and the Roman government. So in an effort to survive and help each other survive, those that had began to sell off their stuff and give to those in need. Scripture says they sold the land and houses and bringing all the proceeds to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute them to everyone who had need. Boy, they must have really trusted the apostles. Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, uh, a name they gave him is translated son of encouragement. He was an encourager. uh, Barnabas sold his land. He brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Brought all of the money, laid it at the feet of the apostles. Now, no doubt, 
by the name that the apostles gave Barnabas and no doubt by Barnabas' gift and his generosity probably had the gift of giving. There is a gift of giving. You know what that is? The gift of giving is giving on steroids. Yeah, husbands that have the gift of giving will always be in check by their wives. And, and wives who have the gift of giving will be in check by their husbands. So Barnabas obviously had the gift of giving. He gave it it all. Perhaps one reason apostles named him Barnabas, a son of encouragement, was because of how he encouraged others by his giving. But on the other hand, when Ananias sold land and kept back some of the money with his wife's knowledge, he and Sapphira saw an opportunity to make a double profit. They would gain spiritual prestige and still make some money on the side. Withholding part of the money for their own use was not a sin. As Peter clearly states in verse 4, because nowhere were the believers commanded to give everything. The giving of their offering, like all New Testament giving, was voluntary. Paul points out this principle in 2 Corinthians 9 and 7, stating, So let each one give as he has purpose in his or her heart, not grudgingly, not because somebody is twisting your arms, not because we're trying to be seen of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We believe that text here at Good Hope Church. That's the reason why we don't beg for money. That's the reason why we don't twist arms for money. That's the reason why we don't browbeat for money. That's the reason why we don't have games and give it, gimmicks and tricks and sell stuff in order to, to get money. We believe that giving is voluntary. And, and once people know the needs according to their hearts, you give. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the overt sin of Ananias and Sapphira was lying through publicly pretending to have given all the proceeds from the sale of the property. Now, while lying was sin sure enough, it was only the outward manifestation, a smokescreen, a cover-up of the deeper, darker, devastating work of pretense, fakery, falsehood, hypocrisy, which drove them to desire to be members of the most spiritual nobility. Here's the antidote for the sin of pretense, for the sin of fakery, for the sin of hypocrisy. For the sin of pretense. Here's the antidote. Be straight up. Be yourself. Operate in your own gifts and talents. Do what you do to the best of your ability. Seek first and foremost to please God. And leave the results. To him. 
Second, if we're going to be a straight-up church in a falling-down world, we need to apply spiritual protocol. Notice verses 8 and 9. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. In other words, Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for the amount that your husband said you sold the land. And then, obviously, he shared the amount. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the same feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out. They're at the door, and they will carry you out. Do you see the problem? The problem was that Sapphira did not follow spiritual protocol. Spiritual protocol is simply this. Place God first above everyone and everything else. That means no matter who it is in our lives, mama, daddy, husband, wife, friend, supervisor, co-worker, manager, administrator, pastor, deacon, leader, whoever, if they want to go wrong, be wrong, do wrong, that's their choice. But as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, our first priority should always be to put Bible-based truth first and follow God first. That's protocol. And I've often said to my wife, you love me, you respect me, you willfully submit to my leadership. That's Bible. But if it should come a time when I deviate from this word, you are under no obligation to follow my lead. As pastor of this church, you're obligated as members to follow the vision that's cast by the pastor. But at any time I, as pastor, deviate from this Bible and go another way that releases you from any obligation of following my leadership. Why it is people will sit up in churches under leadership that's not of God. Everybody knows it. It's beyond reason. You're under no obligation. Your first priority is to follow God. You see, it made no difference how much Sophia loved Ananias. It made no difference how long they had been married, how many children they had, or if, whether or not they had grandchildren. Uh, when it came to him lying, she should have prayed for him, talked to him, encouraged him to do right, but never should she have gone along with his deception. She broke protocol. In this case, going along, even to get along, cost her her life. Going along with wrong just to get along will always cost you more. 
than you want to pay. That's sin for you, isn't it? Sin will always take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and cost us more than we want to pay. In this case, going along, even to get along with her husband, cost her her life. If we're going to be a straight church in a fallen down world, we must follow protocol. Let's follow protocol. Not what we see other ministries doing on television. Not what we hear other self-proclaimed bishops and apostles and pastors say. But we are to follow protocol. Not what we hear influential family members say. Not what we hear co-workers say, their interpretations. But we are to follow protocol. That means following truth, speaking truth, living truth, even when it conflicts with the desires of people in our families, in our social settings, in our career paths, or even in our congregation. Third, if we're going to be a straight-up church in a fallen-down world, we need to acknowledge God's swift punishment. That is, take it seriously. God does not wink at sin. Notice the swift punishment of Ananias in verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Notice the death of Sapphira in verse 9. Peter said, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10 states, they immediately, immediately, underscore immediately, fell down at his feet and breathed. She breathed her last. You see, the ultimate cause of Ananias' and Sapphira's swift punishment was clearly an act of God's divine judgment. This text teaches that God does not take sin lightly. He never has. He never will. And those who think differently, even though they are getting by, even though they are sliding by, even though they continue in their wickedness, even though they keep rolling on, God does not take sin lightly. He never has, never will. Those who think differently every moment of the day are playing Russian roulette like Ananias and Sapphira with their lives. Whether God does it immediately or whether he does it in a distant future, it's just a matter of time. Fourth and finally this morning, if we're going to be a straight-up church in a fallen-down world, we need to appreciate God's solemn purging. That is to say we ought to be thankful for the way in which God cleans house. He cleans house in government in its own time, in its own way. Just, just recall history. He cleaned house. He always does. As the church, we ought to be thankful for the ways he cleans house, not only in 
in government, in society, but even in the church. God has a way of purging his church, cleaning house. And if we're going to be straight up church in a fallen down world, we'll be encouraged by God's purging process. God knows how to get the attention of troublemakers and convince them that it's in their best interest to stop playing games, faking it, trying to make it. It's best just to get in line with his vision for his church, his world, his state, his city. It's in the text. For verse 11 recaps verse 6 with the words, so great fear came upon all the church. Did you get that? Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. What things? What did they hear? What shocked them? What got their attention? What turned some sinners into saints? What caused all these people, 3,000 people and 5,000 people, rather, to get saved? What thing? Things like Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, because they were playing games and creating havoc in the church. No doubt after those two burials, those two funerals, those two fresh grave sites, no doubt after those two deaths, much self-examination took place. It's in the text. I'm glad I saw some stuff that got me in check. I'm glad it didn't have to go the route of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm glad that while I was out there away from God, he put some things in my life that got my attention, and I made the change. The good news is, no matter what road we are on, we can make that change. Sophia could have made that change. She could have said, oh, no, wait a minute, I'm wrong. He was wrong. From henceforth, I'm going to do the right thing. She had a charge. People were checking themselves, trying to make sure. They were on the right path with God. Aren't you glad that God did some stuff to cause you to check yourself? You, you much better off today because you checked yourself. You, you got more joy now because you checked yourself. Things might not be exactly what you want them to be, but because you checked yourself, you are right with God. And when you are right with God, come what may, you know God's got it. Thank God for the measures he places in our lives that cause us to check ourselves. God, I'm out of line. God, I'm out of order. God, I'm checking myself. God, from this day forward, I'm going to do life your way. 